Welcome back, local citizens. I'm Florence Adu, your host for the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around doing something in the world. This week, we have part two of our conversation with Yana Fleming. I'm happy to have her back talking more about marketing and her travels, not only in Asia and Africa and South America, but also in faraway islands that many of us never even imagined living on. So join in and listen to the conversation. So I I will say this. It's a very, very interesting situation that took place in in Papua New Guinea. The island was Mm. kind of quarter. It was Jordan into quarters. So um, German Lutherans, they took the area around Garoka, in the southeastern area, the Catholic, the French Catholics took that area. The British Episcopalians took another area of the island. And so you have this island that is highly, highly Christian, but at the same time, highly, highly, and I rarely use the word pagan, but because of this belief that they're saying that the tradition of beating their women is from their original culture, not from what the Europeans brought in. They're saying that that's part of their original culture is, I mean, because for instance, if a woman is pregnant, she has to go out into the bush to give birth because they don't want the bad spirits to come that come along with a woman giving life. So you have this infant and mother mortality rate in Papua New Guinea that was the same as the U.S. in 1887. In 2018 in Papua New Guinea, it was the same as 1887 in the U.S. because of these ideas. So that's why I say I don't think it's Western. Western Mm -hmm. culture never said for women to go out into the bush and give, uh, you know, I mean, they had midwives. But this concept of midwifery of these women going out into the bush and, I mean, even when a woman has her period in Papua New Guinea, in specific tribes, she's not allowed in the house and she can't touch any of the food that's being cooked because, you know, she'll dirty it with her menstruation. So that's why I I believe that they're like, when I say pagan, I'm saying, because I'm like, this just has no root in natural society. Because if you look at the history, you look at the history of the world, women did have a place, no matter what culture you look at in the beginning, women did have a place and whether or not it was being the gatherers to the hunters or whether or not it was as priestesses or as goddesses, or, you know, I mean, you look at Venus, you look at Athena, you look at whatever. I mean, there was a place for women at some point in time everywhere. And this kind of nonsense, I don't know where it comes from. I think that, you know, they were marooned on this Island separated from everything else for so long. And I mean, and of all the things they could have adopted from Christianity, they could have, taking some better respect for your fellow man, but that did not happen. Yeah. So the violence extends beyond just the women. It's amongst the Mm -hmm. males as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I will say that I have heard about women being shunned and pushed out of the house and and, other parts of Asia as well. So the Middle East and Asia. So, I mean, that was part of our our work with the the menstrual cups as well, just to kind of like hello, this is not a plague. This is how life happens. So I want to take a a little twist. So you mentioned Thailand and that being your special place. Tell us a little bit more about how you found your journey for finding that particular place and, and the kind of things that you're doing there. Well, I'll be honest. I actually burnt out. I was running so much 
when I was working for 21CL, I had, it was 2010 because the World Cup was in South Africa. I got to go to at least one game and I burned out because before the final happened, I had flown over 600,000 miles and the Mm -hmm. final is is in June or July. My friend Tara, I was staying at her house and she said that I was like a zombie in front of my computer with Skype constantly open and talking to people on all these different time zones and always trying to sound like I was together. And she finally took my computer away, spoke to the woman who was the head of the organization and said, look, you can't talk to Jan anymore. She's burned out. And the woman, Charlotte, she actually said, well, let's send her to Thailand. And mm. they sent me um, they sent me to a place in Koh Samui that was a, a yoga retreat. And you know me and, you know, I'm a little bit more hyper than, the, let's say, yoga. So I was riding my moped around one day and I come across this Muay Thai gym and I was like, whoa, that looks like so much more fun than yoga. So I switched my I switched my reservation I actually had three months off in Thailand. It wasn't off completely because I had a massive amount of reading to do for some of the projects we were working on. But, you know, reading is different than flying around all over the place. Right. And so um, so I wound up I wound up at a, a Muay Thai gym there and just absolutely fell in love with it. Made some interesting friends, people that I would have never met in, in my, you know, regular travels. From there, I wound up training in Pattaya, but that was also because it corresponded with a program that we were doing to create mobile uh, community centers for the migrant workers. So the mobile community centers would be made out of shipping containers. And so as the projects moved, they could actually move the community center along with it. Um, And and also, at the same time, working on the project for self-defense for these kids, because both mother and father typically worked on these construction projects. And these were people from Cambodia and from Laos. And so they have a, a lower standing here in Thailand. And uh, and their kids don't actually have access to school always. In some cases, they do have access to school, but it's not unconditional. So you'd have these kids running around and playing in ditches and all this kind of stuff. And you also had a big problem with sex trafficking and people picking up these people, snatching these kids. And specifically in Pattaya, where you have this underlying filth culture of I mean, that, that that place is one of the most disgusting places I've ever been in, in my life. I mean, just because, I mean, I understand that sex sells, but I, I think that, that, you know, 15 minute hotel rentals, the constant signs for Viagra, the forehand massages, the one alley that's de- dedicated to lady boys, the other one that's dedicated to underage kids, you know, I mean, just, wow. it's just too much. And I never understood how Russians, there were a lot of Russians there and they would be there with their children walking up and down the street. And I had two favorite restaurants there. One was Egyptian and uh, one was Iranian. And they were so sweet to me. They were like, look, if it's in the afternoon, you can come down and have lunch and it's all good. But if it's in the evening, please don't come down here. Just call us. We'll send your food to you you shouldn't be exposed to this stuff. I mean, and, you know, I mean, obviously uh, having been around Muslim culture for a long time and, and I mean, I always dressed 
conservatively when I went to their restaurants out of respect for them. And yeah, it was just nice to have that feeling. And one thing I will say, I mean, Thailand's supposed to be the land of a thousand smiles and people really are nice here. I mean, hospitality is taken to a whole nother level. I mean, I, I think about this hotel that I stay in now and I've been staying here on and off for the past five years. I mean, I honestly believe that I probably spent more time in this hotel in the past five years than I have any place else in the world. And right. the owners of the hotel, I broke my foot. They were like, don't worry, we'll go grocery shopping for you. They took me to the hospital. I mean, like, you know, they don't have to do that. They could charge me for that. They didn't. I mean, right now, because of the fact that we might have this lockdown, I went crazy grocery shopping with a friend of mine and they just opened up another hotel room next to me and said, here, use the refrigerator in there to put your stuff in there so that you're all nice and stocked up. I mean, you know, wow. this kind of kind of. And so that's I mean, that's kind of where I got the special relationship with Thailand. And then furthermore, because of the gym that I go to in Kaolak, which is called Rawai Muay Thai, just a quick plug there for mm-hmm. an excellent gym that is made for people of all sizes and all levels, whether or not you're ready to go have a fight right now or whether or not you just want to get in shape, Rawai is the place for you. Uh, But it's owned by um, two friends of mine. And it actually turned out the woman who married a Thai and co-owns a gym, she and I went to the same sleepaway camp in Maine. (laughs) (laughs) Someone said there's actually only two degrees of separation between everybody on the earth. So yeah. that that was one. So uh, the six yeah. is probably it was just so fun. Yeah. Okay. And I mean, and she's she's Mexican, and she grew up as a child of a diplomat. She lived all over the world, but it happened to be that she went to sleepaway camp in Freedom, Maine. I mean, and this, I mean, the camp is in Freedom, Maine. It's not like you know some massive camp like YMCA or something like that. It's this really obscure art camp um, that that we both went to. So yeah, and we actually swam against each other on opposing swim teams in DC as well. So it was kind of this, like, it was kind of this, this like coming home feeling that I was like, okay, so I'm in Thailand, but I still have this like very like intricate and kind of intimate relationship with this person. Um, And so I've been helping her. I've been helping the gym a lot with their marketing and rebuilding their websites and, and building up their brand and redesigning all the clothes in the shop and all that kind of stuff. So Mm -hmm. it's been, I mean, it's been fun because, you know, that's like, you know, I still like to give, give back same time that I'm training. Yeah, that's great. That's great. And you're always working. We know that. So tell us a little bit more about what you hear. So this could be anywhere. And this is where I ask my guests to share a word, phrase, or saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why or how you came to value it as local speak. Well, what I hear. So it's interesting. Um, I have to say this because and I'm I'm somewhat ashamed of this, that I have stayed in Thailand the amount of time that I have, and I've never really learned to speak Thai. But mm. at the same time, I will admit Thai is a tonal language, and I mean, I can do things. I can count. I know moves. I, I can order stuff. I know my left from my right and hot and cold and that kind of stuff. But I've taken to not just saying kapunka, which is thank you. I've actually taken nowadays more to saying kapumak which is thank you very much. And it's just that that little extra effort of me clearly being a foreigner who doesn't speak Thai mm-hmm. and just, mm-hmm. get, just giving that little extra bit of thank you very much. Because whether or not it's the woman who's working in the 7-Eleven or, I mean, because right now the 
much like in America, only essential businesses are open. I've just been trying to embrace the same concept of ties of, of this land of a thousand smiles and and hospitality and just being polite to people, which is mm-hmm. so kind of the an anthema of, 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 of Washington or New York, where you're just nice to people for the sake of being nice to people instead of being nice to them because they're in your way or you want something from them, you know, exactly. Mm-hmm. So kind of, being, so, I mean, there's a lot of grace in that. Yeah, it is. And, and you know what else? One of the things that I absolutely love, just because here, you don't shake hands with people. You put your palms together and almost like in a Western kind of prayer situation and you bow your head and you say, when you introduce yourself to someone, that's how you introduce yourself. And so, you know, hey, that is great for not spreading germs. You know, no elbow, no elbow bumps, no nothing like that. This is already, it's already built into the culture. But one thing that I do hear, and this is something that's very interesting, is that trying to implement social distancing, not just in Thailand, but in Asia in general, is extraordinarily difficult because there is no concept of personal space. And we have all talked about it before yeah. about yeah. people standing on top of you, whether or not you're in, in Zambia or whether or not you're in Thailand, of just like, why is it that the, there were three open seats in the movie theater and you sat down next to me? Why? You know, <laughs> like, like this, mm-hmm. this kind of personal space, this kind of social distancing. And that's actually what I'm hearing a lot about now. And what you hear a lot about from the government is just that trying to implement social distancing is so difficult because it's it's not a concept. It's not an Asian concept. Right. Right. Yeah. It's difficult here as well. Like people just generally cuddle together, whether it's because out of necessity, because they're packing into a bus to get where they need to go. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I just see people around just sitting and being very close to talking to each other. And it's like, wow, I went and saw a friend before we were on lockdown and we sat six feet away from each other. So, mm-hmm. so it was really like we could have sat together, but we were really conscious of, okay, we need to make sure to keep space between us. So yeah, and it's difficult. And, you know, there's something endearing about the way that we are that, I hope that we don't lose by having to be distant. And I like that comment. Can you say it again? How do you say it? Thank you very much. Oh, kapumak. 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 That's the female version. I actually don't know how to say it as a man. It changes between how you say it. But I, I I have to be perfectly honest. In terms of being in the stores and in public, I've been great about the social distancing. But being with Deanna, the one who owns the gym, her family kind of, you know, is like my family here, you know? And so like, you know, in case the hotel closes, she's like, of course you can come and stay with us and everything like that. And so, you know, we've been in the car together. I got her oldest daughter. because I was like, oh, I want to go walking on the beach. We just need to like, just take a minute and absorb this loveliness and, and try and just get out of our heads and get out of all of this madness that's going on. And there's nothing like looking at the ocean and, and yeah. realizing how small you are and how, you know, and, and you have no control over, <laughs> over a lot of things. So mm-hmm. um, she and I, she and I went um, walking down the beach and walked for about a mile in each direction. And we weren't six feet apart because we were talking while we were walking, but we both had on masks. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and then we went back another day to go do beach cleanup because the tide had been bringing in a lot of plastic bottles 
So while we were doing that, we had gloves and masks on, but we weren't necessarily social distancing. The same thing, I cooked dinner. I cooked dinner there last night. And obviously when we were sitting at the dinner table, we weren't sitting six feet apart. But I mean, I have to say this. I mean, I've been in this small town since November. The only time I left was I left on January 25th. I went to Singapore, who at that time, Singapore was already starting to shut down schools. And Singapore was already on was already on temperatures and everything like that. So only place I went was to Singapore and came back. And so I've basically been in this small town. And so she and so it's her kids. So we have and we just we got these first five cases and they are actually ties. They came back from a different island into town. Yeah. So I feel like I, I do recognize social distancing in public, but at the same time, when I'm sitting around with them, I didn't I, I, I don't observe it. I'll be perfectly honest. Yeah. I mean, when, you sit in the house, when you're sitting in the house, it, it seems it seems weird to sit six yeah. feet away from somebody. Well, families, yeah, like families, definitely they're not they're not doing it. It's just it's just very hard to start to put it, wrap your head around it. That's definitely. That's, so I want to get a little bit more detailed into the the mindset of a marketer or a communications consultant because okay. you mentioned that this is the way the new way and the new wave of things. And so what are some of the, the skills, the, the, the processes that you engage in that are you know, critical to being technically efficient and also creatively expressive and effective in your work? Well, so I'll say this, and I'll actually kind of go back to when I was getting my master's degree. And when I was getting my master's degree, a professor that I had who was in Poughkeepsie, uh, upstate, and... She's talking about how this is how international marketing works. And I was like, no, it's not. All these things that you just said, they're all American or Mm -hmm. maybe slightly European, but that's not international marketing. And I'll give you an example. She talked about the uselessness of the best job ever campaign that came out of Australia. And I said, well, the reason why that campaign makes sense is because Plenty of people who are from Commonwealth countries have the ability to go to Australia from anywhere between the age of 18 to 30, and they can work and they can work in Australia and then pick fruit and then work and then pick fruit and work and pick fruit. So it's this concept of like come to Australia and they have a, a labor shortage of people who are doing this fruit picking. So the fact that you didn't even understand that marketing is not a, a one size fits all. And the American approach to marketing and communications is not the only way to go. And I, I really feel like like that's something that really needs to be, like, that can't be overstated enough. I, and I know that you know this, for instance, when you have, uh, when we think about Facebook at home, I'm like, oh, I don't go on Facebook. And you know, I'm, maybe I'm friends with some people from high school or whatever, whereas, when I moved back to Africa, I had to open my Facebook profile because it would be considered rude for me not to accept requests from people that I just had a meeting with. They didn't go and look for me on LinkedIn. They went to look for me on Facebook. Right. And, and so looking at these kind of tools that we have. So when you look at the, the ability of what Twitter did during the Arab Spring versus when you look at what TikTok does in Asia or what Line when, what Line does in Asia or when you think about WhatsApp or mobile money in Kenya and you think about these different these 
that everything has to be adapted to the culture. And I, I go back again to those menstrual cups and saying that the gentleman said to me, he was like, well, he said two things that were quite offensive. One was he thought that as a Caucasian man, he was in a better position than me as a woman of color with a hijab on, that he was in a better position to sell the, the concept of the menstrual cups into the school and that the students liked being taught by white people better than black people. Wow. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I, there's not, I mean, there's no need to comment any, any more beyond that on that subject. But the point is, is that I said, look, okay, let's do it your way. You did this, you did this massive thing. You had 2,500 girls there and you only got back 12 letters. Now let's try it my way. I'm going to mm-hmm. go talk to the imam. I'm going to ask the imam to introduce me to some influential older women in the community. I'm going to explain to them in private what this does and why that why we're trying to use it and why it's not haram, you know, and everything about that. And then I'm going to ask these women to talk to the teachers at the all-girls school so that the teachers are behind it as well. And then let's see how many letters we get asking for asking for the menstrual cups. And of course, we got more letters because right. we took into account we took into account the need to be culturally sensitive and it's it's something i can't overstate is that everything in everything that i do i try to be i try to be culturally sensitive i try to be culturally aware i try to think about how do i meet my audience whether or not i'm talking to them about health education or whether or not i'm talking to them about deodorant where do I meet them on the platforms that they use most? While I was in Egypt, I actually did a workshop. Uh, it was the first time I'd done one in Arabic and in English, where I met with these women entrepreneurs. And with each one of them, it was about how do we figure out who your customer is and what platforms do they use? And so there's no reason for you to be shouting into the ether on TikTok when your customer is on LinkedIn, right? you know, based on the different types of things. So I really enjoy, and, and there's nothing better than when I give these women their assignment and they come back or, or they start in the WhatsApp groups that we create talking about, I really get it. Oh my goodness. I know who my customer is now. Okay. I've got my plan. And they get so excited. And I mean, and that excitement is just absolutely infectious to me and I love it. That's my favorite part of it. And so when I, when I, when I kind of balance the idea that, you know, marketing can be kind of a dirty word because marketing can be sleazy, marketing can be underhanded, but Mm -hmm. there's also the side that it's empowering and teaching these women, these skills. And I have to say one of my favorite comments that I had got (laughs) when I was teaching in Egypt, and this was a co-ed class that was you know, we just had this white guy in here from America and all he did was show us all the amazing things he had done. He didn't show us how to look at our neighborhood and how we could actually target 
people that were just within our neighborhood in Cairo. He was talking about what he did in Silicon Valley and what he did in Texas and what he did there. And they're like, all he did was show off. They never actually showed me how I could apply any of this to my business. And I was just like, yay, I did it. I was like, I feel like that's when I did my job. That's when I like, that's when I'm succeeding as a communications person, not only because I'm communicating with you and, and the communication circle is complete, and the feedback is good, but it's also that you're learning it. And now you can take this and you can apply it to your business and you can teach somebody else and, you know, we can keep on moving forward. And I know as an expat and as somebody who likes to take these communication jobs, I know that it seems counterintuitive to spend so much time capacity building with my staff, but I believe that my staff should be able to do my job. That, yeah, maybe Mm -hmm. you needed me for a year, but you needed me for a year so that I could train them and they needed some then they needed some Coursera maybe and you know they needed some other applications and maybe they needed a little lynda.com and they needed me encouraging them and teaching them hands-on things but in reality these jobs should actually be local i mean and right. you know and that's that global that's that global thing is that yeah i am global but i'm trying to put the local back into these jobs because why are you having to pay $8,000 a month for my apartment in Papua New Guinea when you don't even pay my assistant manager that much as a salary, mm-hmm. you know, let alone what you're paying me. So I, like, I, I just really feel completely dedicated to this, not only building the capacity through workshops, but also through every single job I take. I want to make sure that I leave something positive behind that people feel like that they've learned something. And that mm-hmm. they're going to be able to use it to, to, to get a better job, to help feed their families, to just, you know, to create a better world, I guess. Nice. That's a good segue into my next segment or question, which is our mindset hack. And so what is your favorite or an innovative mindset hack? And it's one that you can imagine or one that you know of and that you put into practice. Hmm. That's a really hard question. And I even had I had a chance to think about it, but I like I still well I have to say (laughs) it is my move that go it's my move and it's my Neptune which Mm -hmm. allows me to listen to music while I'm swimming (laughs) and the ability to either listen to music or listen to an audio book while I'm swimming allows me to open up my mind so far because I get the sense of peace when I'm submerged in the water and when I'm moving through the water. And as these, uh, like, I mean, well, you know, sometimes, I mean, I could be listening to anything from Bob Marley to everything but the girl. But as this, as this music just kind of lets my mind open, all these ideas come flowing through. And I feel like if this technology wasn't there, would I have had as many thoughts or, or, right. you know, innovations like that I've had. Recently. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So what, so what is that again? You said a, a, a move? So it's a, yeah. So move is the thing that allows you to stop counting your laps. So it's, it's giving you all the information on whether or not you're keeping good pace and all that kind of stuff. So that's one part that goes on your wrist, but that's also move also is great for running. It tells you about your foot placement and how much pressure you're putting on each step and everything like that. It's a, it's a really good, um, it's a really good cheap wearable. It's like 50 bucks. 
But then the other part is by by Finice, and they invented it when I was still in Argentina. It used to be called a swim P3. And I remember telling my friend who worked for the airline, oh my goodness, I already ordered it. It's at your house. You have to fly to Argentina and bring me this right now. I was like, I can't go another day without this. And that was in 2006. And I have had, I have had that thing as it's progressed and turned into a smaller, more compact item. It's called a duo now. It's called, it's been called a Neptune, a swim P3, but it has truly and completely changed my life. And it's allowed me, it allows me to get into my meditation that I get into while I'm swimming, but also to still get the benefit of the exercise of it. Because think about it as, as that fast song comes on, you're moving around. It's like, okay, well, I'm like, I got to keep like my, my booty got to keep moving to the beat. So like got to pick sure. up the pace here, you know? Right, right, right. Yeah. Wow. That's swimmer's paradise. Basically, basically. Yeah, yeah it absolutely is. And, and I truly, I, I truly credit that time in the pool for many, many, many of the, the, the best ideas that I've had like since mm-hmm. 2006, that, that time to just open up. So I would call yeah. that my mindset. That's, that would be really, truly my mindset hack. That sounds a lot like running for me. I don't run with sound, but just the getting in that zone is like my mind mm-hmm. just works through things, does things. So yeah. Problems, like problems are solved. It's like, it's yeah. like problems that you like that you didn't even necessarily remember that were there. All of a sudden their solutions just, yeah, they just come through. And one of the things about swimming before was that sometimes you could just get way too into your head because it's quiet mm-hmm. and you could just be thinking and thinking about things mm-hmm. and letting it and go off on maybe a, a bad tangent. Whereas the music, especially if you when you make your own playlist and everything like that, the music keeps you in the place where you want to be and and moving along. That's really interesting because I'm reading this book. It's How to Change Your Mind, and it's that book about the psychedelic journey. Um, I'll put that in mm-hmm. the show notes. But in one of so I'm at the point where he's doing his trips, and so that was a, is a key aspect of the treatment side of, of doing these trips. It's like the music moves the mind mm-hmm. in these other places and other ways. So, I mean, there's definitely science to it and it's absolutely a mindset hack. If you just put it in context. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yana, we're getting towards the end of our conversation. This has been super duper. And we always have marathon conversations, so I'm not even Very surprised. True. I want to cover one last one question. What is your value proposition. So this is either a personal or professional. What do you think your value proposition is? My value proposition is capacity building. That is my value proposition. And it's very strange coming from getting an undergraduate degree in a fine art, literally having a bachelor of fine arts in photography to moving to this point where I don't feel that I have succeeded in my job if somebody else hasn't lifted with me, you know, the, the rising tides lift all boats. Yeah. And so, I mean, like, I feel that if I haven't brought a couple of little dinghies along with me and I mean, and if you remember, you, you remember Sarah, I mean, um, I mean, she wouldn't be considered a dinghy that would be considered a, a massive yacht, but right. having opportunity to, to mentor people and whether or not they're rich or poor, whether or not they're at the peak of their potential or they're just realizing it. I, I really feel like 
that's my value proposition is that I know how to talk to people and specifically to talk to women and help them see their worth and the worth of what their endeavors, the worth of their endeavors, whether or not it is working for another company or whether or not it's working for themselves. But I really feel like that is truly my, my gift is, is not sounding obnoxious and not belittling people, which is often the case when people in developing nations or emerging markets attend these seminars is that these people come in with such bloated egos. So I I try and remove the ego and I totally admit when, you know, I mean, especially when I was doing that one between Arabic and English, I was like, okay, you know, I know my verbs don't agree. Okay. You know, I'm I'm just trying to, I'm trying to make you a little bit more comfortable and, you know, and I'm like, so maybe we're going to have to repeat a few things and everything like that. I'm like, but I'm doing my best. And if you do your best, then together we're really going to, we're going to make it and we're going to make this the best workshop that and everybody's going to get what they need out of it. So, yeah, that's my value proposition is capacity building. Nice. I would I would agree. There's also something else that you're you're so just to take a different tack and round out our our conversation from the art you to the serious you. You're working on something new right now. Something that's kind of a blast from the past, but it's something something new. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yes. Um, when I found myself back in Washington, D.C., getting ready for grad school, I decided that it was time for me to write my memoir. Mm-hmm. And people had been telling me over and over and over, I can't even tell you the amount of times that people told me I needed to write my story down. Because when you talk about the when you talk about the travel memoir space, you have to admit it's really dominated by white women. It's the story. It's the eat, pray, love. It's the under the Tuscan sun. It's, it's that. That's, that's the story. And there's so few stories of women of color that go out there and adventure and see the world. And on top of it, we see the world through a completely different way. That blonde-haired, blue-eyed woman walking around Morocco does not have the same experience that I have walking around Morocco <laughs> um, or, or walking around Qatar or walking around Brazil or walking around Northern Brazil, you know, I mean, I'm like, or, or Colombia or any of these places. So it is kind of blendability that we have as, as being part of the diaspora. It, it's, and even, and even in a place as far away as Thailand, where obviously I don't look Thai, but I don't look white. <laughs> so yeah. the kind of right. sentiment towards you is, is different where, I mean, of course you always have to recognize the fact that in, at the end of the day, you are American and American, that American passport does change things. But I really felt that it was time for me to write my story. So I wrote my story back in 2013 and I sold 3000 copies. I don't know whether or not you actually knew that. And then I took it off the market because I really, I really needed some time to sit with it. And I had really done a rush job because I honestly locked myself in my room for several days and, and just wrote it. Um, And I needed some time to sit with it. And part of what I had to do was I had to come to a place where I realized that I can't write my exact story. What I can write is autobiographical novel. So the majority of it is true, but obviously, owing to the fact that, you know, we didn't always make the best decisions um, in our college years or even post-college years, Mm -hmm. I've 
obviously decided to change some of the names and to reorder some of the events so that it would necessarily point to specific people. But, you know, but I still feel like it, it's, right. it's inhabiting of, of a travel writer. And so I'm doing two things. I'm, I'm building the website out, which is called Colored Girls Travels. And then I'm also taking the time to use several blog entries that I wrote while working on a project called Internationality with a, a fellow traveling friend of mine who also, we see the world through this ability to travel without paying. <laughs> This concept of, mm. hey, I can get a job, I can get a job working overseas and they'll pay me to travel. Or I can even be a volunteer that gets paid for my plane ticket and my room and board. Or even when I'm in college, I can have a funded study abroad program. And so we we built this website to try and showcase these opportunities to our brothers and sisters of color, specifically in the US and Canada so that they could see that there were so many other ways besides these $5,000 two-week, one-week trip to Cuba where all you do is just post on Instagram all day long and and you never actually meet anybody. It's like, you know, like, let's take some time to do some cultural immersion. And so I'm, I'm mixing the two of those. And as you can tell just from talking to me that I have a little tongue-in-cheek manner of speaking. So um, there are some posts on there. And I know one of them that you, uh, you'll you be happy to see is the one that talks about the 10 types of travelers that we often meet and um, talks about the cruising, cruising Cassie and, um, and nervous Norma, who just got her passport and thinks that, you know, if she travels out of the United States, she's going to get eaten by a lion. So yeah, so there's a lot of there's a lot of fun stuff on there, and um, and by the time of this airs, that site will be up and running. And I'm hoping that people will enjoy the excerpts from the book and also the blog posts. Yeah, yeah. So again, this is the epitome of a global citizen. So I just want to say, Yana, you are the poster child for global citizenship. From the idea of internationality, which is basically a guide to being able to move across borders and be somewhere else and think about how you could actually make money and make a livelihood out of that to then actually being in a place and actually doing something there. Because I think the epitome of your work as it has evolved is exactly what doing something means. So any last words before we sign off? My last word is this. Everybody should learn to speak another language. Even if you can't speak it perfectly, even if all you know how to do is speak in the street way where Mm. your verbs and nouns don't necessarily agree, you should take the time to learn somebody else's language and to try and talk to them when you're out on these travels. And, And it's a shame because there's plenty of people who are expats who spent their lives living overseas and never bothered to learn anything else besides English because they feel that everybody should speak English. Yeah. So yeah. whether or not whether or not you're an expat or whether or not you're just a casual traveler, I still feel that I mean, even if all you can say is kapumak, thank you very much, or my sai nam tam, I don't want any MSG. <laughs> you, know, um, <laughs> just, uh, you need to uh, I think you need to learn how to say things. You need to learn right. how to, you need to try and to look somebody in the eye and try and meet them on their level and not just assume because your country has a higher GDP that you're more special than they are. 
Sure. And that's going to change, folks. Let's just be real. So learn a language for survival. That's that's another exactly. part of it. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Yana, so much for joining us today. Global Citizens, thanks again for joining us. We are back each and every Tuesday at GlobalCitizensPod.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. So subscribe, like us, comment, engage. These are going to be some great show notes. So please do check out the show notes. Much, so much, so much insight there. And um, I'm going to say bye for now. Bye.